Hello and welcome to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson and I am here with my co-host Dan Torres. Hey Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing great because we have two fantastic guests on the show today. We have Tara Fisher from the Opioid Task Force and Rachel Katz, the Director of Addiction Services for the Community Health Center of Franklin County. Welcome guys. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, of course. So we had Rachel and Tiara on the show today to talk specifically about the HEAL initiative, which is a program from the uh, National Institutes of Health. But first, I want to talk about the role of the Opioid Task Force and how you guys found this organization and the state of addiction and addiction services in the region today. Maybe we can start with Tiara. Would you want to tell us a bit about the Opioid Task Force and how it came to be? Yeah, sure. So I actually joined the task force um, just this past June, but the opioid task force started sometime in around 2013, and this was initiated by our co-chairs, which is registered John Merrigan, DA David Sullivan, as well as Sheriff Donnellan at the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. And so the origin story of the task force was in 2013, this was around the time when knowledge, general knowledge in the public about opioid addiction was still a little bit unknown. And we were starting to first see in our rural region, a lot of people being affected by this, namely young people, and there wasn't resources available. There was nowhere for families to really go in this area to get help, to seek treatment or really learn about how to support their family members or loved ones um, suffering from this addiction. And so DA Sullivan, Sheriff Donnellan, as well as Register Merrigan, they were able to host an event, a conversation. Um, I believe it was at uh, Greenfield Community College. And that sort of was the first iteration of what became the Opioid Task Force. Since 2013, um, we have many work groups as well as many standing committees that each focus on um, healthcare solutions, exploring options to increase methadone treatment, as well as looking at alternative medicine therapies, as well as looking at harm reduction and how to support unhoused individuals. And so it's really grown over, over the past now, goodness, decade. Yeah, it has been a while. And it's interesting to hear the ways that the Opioid Task Force has kind of expanded the scope of their work, which kind of leads me to another question for um, both you, Tiara, and Rachel. How's the conventional knowledge of addiction changed in that decade since you began this work? Yeah, so I'm I'm happy to jump in here. So Tiara did a great job at giving the overview of the Opioid Task Force and kind of where it started. And, and I agree with you, Sarah. I love how it has taken this initial kind of narrow view of, of addiction and, and addiction treatment and has really expanded it into multiple avenues of medication for addiction, as well as psychosocial services and, and alternative type medications and um, alternative therapies. So in terms of sort of expanding the knowledge of addiction or where we've come in the last 10 years. So I think one of the big things that has really shifted and had started to shift even before 10 years ago, but has really shifted significantly in the last 10 years is the recognition that the disease of addiction or substance use disorder can really be thought about as a biochemical disease in the brain. So very similar to something like diabetes or, or heart disease, our brains can get sick and the neurotransmitters in our brain react to the substances that we take, whether that is sugar um, or whether it's cocaine. 
So that is one really big shift is that we stopped thinking about addiction as a moral failing or as sort of a failure, a societal failure, although I will get into that, and really started thinking about it more within sort of a biomedical model. So that was what the first really big shift. And that started really with sort of the advent of, you know, a medication called Suboxone or buprenorphine, which was the first medication outside of methadone that we were really finally able to treat addiction um, and that it wasn't treated, you know, purely with behavioral health interventions or with sort of shuttling people away to, to rehabs or detoxes. So that has been one really big shift. And uh, even since then, I would say more recently in the past several years, there's been a shift to expand upon that biochemical model and to really think of it also now as a biochemical, socioeconomic, structural um, piece and that, you know, addiction does not happen in isolation and folks who are predisposed to develop substance use disorders are also often those people who have been failed by our greater systems. So folks who have experienced generations of generational um, trauma or systemic racism, folks who have long histories with intergenerational personal trauma, you know, and certainly addiction crosses all lines, right? And anyone can develop a substance use disorder. But we also now are really thinking about addiction and substance use disorders in general as having sort of a very specific role within our greater psychosocial model. And so that has also been a really big shift and I think has been part of the opioid task force shifting, you know, away from purely looking at the biochemical model of addiction and expanding treatment and, you know, getting more detox beds in Franklin County, which was one of the first big things that we did. And now really looking at folks like housing um, and how can we get stable housing for our people who are unstably housed or chronically unhoused, you know, looking at supportive mechanisms like complementary or, or alternative medications, you know, looking at things like recovery coaches, all of those other pieces that really allow folks to do the work that they need to do to get better from the disease in their brain. So prior to 1916, medications and substances such as heroin and cocaine were actually available on the open market. Um, so heroin was frequently used to treat things like cough. Um, it was also used to um, treat teething pain in infants. Um, and it was considered standard medicine. So it was actually morphine or opium, and it was sold in any common drugstore. Um, cocaine was also widely available, and most people know that Coca-Cola originated that it actually had cocaine in it. And so that was the stimulant that was in Coca-Cola that kept people awake. Cocaine was also used um, as a coagulant. So it actually, and still to this day, you can use very dilute cocaine to stop persistent nosebleeds. So it was used a lot in medical procedures, as well as for shift workers to keep people awake, you know, this was sort of the beginning of the industrial revolution. And so people were work working really long shifts in factories. And so these things were just widely available and were for the most part used pretty responsibly. Certainly addiction did happen. And what is really interesting is that for people who became addicted specifically to heroin, doctors and pharmacists were able to provide them with a safe supply. And so if someone was addicted to heroin, they could go to their physician or to their local pharmacist and continue to buy their heroin such that they were able to continue to live their life and care for their family or work their job in a normal, productive way. So this all changed in 1916 when the Harrison Act was passed. 
So the Harrison Act basically outlawed heroin and cocaine. So it made them federal offenses. So it brought them up to the illegal status. And there's lots of reasons why this happened, but they are all they're all rooted in racism. I was going to say almost all, but they're actually all rooted in racism. And so one of the big things that happened was there was a huge influx of Asian immigrants. And so they brought opium with them. So prior to this large influx of Asian immigrants, opium was not smoked. It was primarily bought as heroin or morphine. And because then of sort of the fear from the white society, they started to portray opium as sort of these opium dens, you know, these Asian men or Chinese men were going to capture and rape white women. Um, and so there's this large production of mass hysteria and fear that was produced. The same thing happened with folks of color and black people. So again, this was, you know, we're still looking at within the first century after slavery was outlawed. And so a lot of the folks who were doing these sort of long shifts, this really arduous labor were people of color and they were using cocaine. And so there was then also the sort of creation of a mass hysteria around crazed black men on cocaine who would steal and rape white women. So everything shifted in 1916 when the Harrison Act was passed. And so suddenly people who had developed addiction could no longer get their substances and continue to use them safely and productively. They suddenly were shifted to the black market. And so that then led to crime and, um, you know, stealing of these substances of sort of the quote unquote degenerate behavior that we think about in terms that historically we've thought about in terms of, again, quote unquote addicts or addictive behavior. So I think that's really when it all started. And then if we kind of fast forward into the 70s or 80s, the 1970s or 1980s, we think about Nixon and Reagan and again, sort of the this rooted in racism, this war on drugs. And that has sort of a whole other story that is also based in racism. Surprise, surprise. And that's when things like mandatory minimums came in um, for prison sentences and you know, where we really started to focus kind of on the crime of using drugs versus the societal shame or stigma that had been present before then. And so I think to answer your question, Dan, to then kind of come up to 30 or 40 years ago, we have all of this history that we've been relying on as a, you know, white dominant racist society and how we have looked at drugs and people who use drugs. And so, you know, up until, again, I would say even 10 years ago, we were looking at addiction or substance use disorders as a moral failing, as something that you did wrong. You know, these sort of erroneous tales of doing one line of cocaine or one, you smoked one bowl of opium and suddenly your life was ruined forever that you had made some horrible moral or ethical decision that your life was not worth saving, that you were not a good mother, that you could no longer go to work and be productive, that you deserve to be jailed, you know, purely for the, the crime or the sin of choosing to use drugs. And so that sort of shame and stigma, really that stigma and discrimination continued, you know, again, through the 80s and 90s, um, and really up until the early 2000s, when we started to shift our thinking and really start to think about the biochemical model of substance use disorders. And even now within communities of people who use drugs, there's significant pushback against the biochemical model because it does still in a way support the idea that you could use 
a drug one time and become addicted to it. Often that is the way that it is still presented in medical education or nursing education. We could get into the details of the neurotransmitters and sort of why that happens or why we think it happens. But again, there's big pushback against that because using drugs often depends on the set and setting. So one of my favorite examples is caffeine, right? So caffeine is actually one of the most addicted substances on earth, and it is the most commonly used drug. It is an incredibly powerful stimulant, okay? But we don't think about sitting down and doing a line of caffeine at a party. One, we would all have a heart attack because that's how strong it is but also because it is now accepted, it's societally accepted. And the set and setting in which we use our caffeine is our morning cup of coffee or our afternoon diet Coke. And so there's, you know, we are relaxed and calm. We are in a safe, calm setting. We are with people that support us and love us. Hopefully we're sitting next to our cat at the dining room table, having a cup of caffeine. And that means that it's okay, right? Whereas if we think about someone doing heroin, if we think about where they are using that heroin or who they are using that heroin with, then we get into the, the idea of set and setting. And that often can predict whether or not someone is going to use substances or drugs chaotically and potentially develop the disease of addiction or a substance use disorder, or whether they're gonna maintain a, a casual recreational user, much in the same way that people use alcohol or marijuana. Yeah, I will, I will just add from a, a less <laughs> clinical perspective, as someone who grew up in central mass and kind of could see firsthand just my own family members um, and how they were treated and impacted by opioid use and how that has shifted a little bit. But, but to, to Rachel's point and how we're looking at it now, um, what she was naming was social determinants of health, right? Like it's all about your environment, where you live. Do you have access to housing? Do you have access to an affordable income? Do you have access to education? How are people living and what are the factors influencing why they're using? It's oftentimes not someone who woke up one morning and thought, hey, I'm gonna go do heroin. I have all that I need to live a quality and healthy life. So I'm just gonna try this. No, it's oftentimes folks are using it to cope or, or filling a gap that they have yep. in their life. So thinking about looking at health more holistically, because it really is about what resources and infrastructure are existing within communities and um, what environments we're allowing folks to live in and, and develop in and, and then judging them for it. Hello and welcome back to Panorama, where we are speaking with Rachel Katz, the uh, Director of Addiction Services for the Community Health Center of Franklin County and Tierra Fisher from the Opioid Task Force. Um, and so we spent some time in the last segment talking about um, the history of how society views drug use. And I want to ask about the role of pharmaceutical companies and where we are in the present day. There have been lawsuits, there have been payouts for lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies for the role that they've played in the addiction crisis and overprescribing painkillers and things like that. So Rachel, could you I don't know, explain to us how pharmaceutical companies fueled this current crisis? Yeah, absolutely. So I know that's a question that's been on a lot of people's minds. And obviously, there's been a lot of media attention, and there have been very large payouts. Essentially, Purdue Pharma came up with a medication called OxyContin. So oxycodone is the short-acting version of that medication, and it is based on the original structure of morphine, 
so morphine was one of the first painkillers that was in, not really even invented, but that sort of was marketed pharmaceutically. And we talked a little bit about that as having its roots in heroin and, and opium. So oxycodone kind of played off of that and it is a synthetic, although it does have its sort of roots in that original biochemical structure. And so what Purdue did was that they came up with a way to make oxycodone long acting and they called it oxycontin. And they told medical professionals and myself included when I was an early practitioner, I certainly got these lectures, that OxyContin was not addictive because it was long acting. And so it didn't hit the brain in the same way that the short acting medications did. And in addition to sort of promoting this kind of medication, Purdue also then went and really targeted medical communities and pushed up pain as what they were calling the sixth vital sign. And so really encourage people to look, providers to look at their patient's pain and then to actively treat their pain with OxyContin. And so it was sort of this double-edged sword of, you know, saying that patients had more pain than we were recognizing and that their pain deserved to be treated and that they were creating a medication that was safe and would never become addictive. And really where the train sort of went off the tracks was that they had data to show otherwise. <laughs> they blatantly lied to the medical professionals and to the community and the nation at large. They knew perfectly well that OxyContin was addictive. And so that's really sort of what started this whole thing. And so, you know, lots and lots and lots of people got put onto oxycodone and oxycontin for pain conditions for which there was no data that opiates would actually be helpful. And so people got onto these medications and were kept on them long term. And then we found out that we were not treating people appropriately and that oxycontin was addictive. And so suddenly there was sort of the opposite swing of the pendulum. And very unfortunately, what happened was that people were cut off from their medications. And we, what we know about addiction and substance use disorders is that you can't just stop these medications. People are going to go into withdrawal. They're going to become incredibly sick. They are going to, their brains are essentially going to tell them to do everything they possibly can to avoid that feeling of, of illness. And so what happened then was that people turned to the streets. And what we know about street drugs is that they are not regulated. We have no idea where they come from. They are full of fillers that either are active or inactive. And so when people were cut off from their medication, which yes, potentially they were addicted to, many people were not. Many people had developed dependence on these medications. If they didn't take them, they would get sick. Much like if I don't have two cups of coffee a day, I get a raging migraine, but they were not addicted to them. But what happened was they were then cut off from them and to avoid getting sick or to continue to treat their pain, they then went to the street and started using heroin. And they then developed a lot of the chaotic behavior that is associated with a substance use disorder. So essentially we took people off of their safe regulated supply that was allowing them to live healthy and productive lives um, and created chaotic use. And so, yes, there was absolutely pharmaceuticals role in creating this epidemic, but I also think that we as a medical community really failed and that we did not look at patients holistically, as Tiara was saying, and that we were really not thinking critically about what was happening. 
and I think Purdue's role in that was that they sold themselves as gods and that they could come in and, and tell us that this medication was not addictive, that they had all this data to back it up. You know, pharmaceutical reps back in the, back in the day would come in with lunches and gifts and dinners. And it's easy to kind of get sold that golden goose, but it definitely, you know, it for sure sort of created this big wave of illicit drug use and, and overdose. The other thing that I think really happened and that we need to bring into the narrative is that when people were taken off of their pain medications, suddenly opioid use and overdose became an epidemic, quote unquote. And really what happened was that it became an epidemic of white people. So it was white people who were being prescribed these pain medications. Black people and brown people and people of color have been dying of drug use for centuries. And no one has cared because we live in an inherently racist society. And so what happened was people, white people were put on these medications for treatment of their pain. And there's data that supports that people of color are not treated for their pain across multiple settings, including emergency rooms, inpatient hospitals, and outpatient clinics. So a white person would come in, complain of pain. They would get put on OxyContin. Eight years later, they were pulled off, the, off their OxyContin. Suddenly, they developed a drug addiction. And now we have an opioid epidemic. I guess I also wanted to maybe turn to Tiara and ask what that has looked like here in Western Massachusetts. I guess from the Opioid Task Force perspective, how has that played out in this community? I get the sense that it has also been compounded by the housing crisis that we're experiencing right now, too. Absolutely. I mean, I can say offhand that compared to the entire state of Massachusetts as of 2021, the rate of opioid-related overdose deaths is nearly double the rate of the entire state. I think once the average death is about, I believe it was 85, and then compared to the state of Massachusetts, it's 31. So actually nearly triple. So it's very, it's very staggering how we've been impacted and how it's affected Western Mass. It has to do a lot with where resources are allocated. We talked a little bit earlier about the social determinants of health, right? Oftentimes, when you say you're from Massachusetts, people only know Boston, right? Well, the same thing's happening with how resources are allocated. A lot of resources, grants, funding, and health support is directed towards the eastern part of the state. And so what ends up happening is we get the leftovers or we're left to work with existing community resources. And that's not to say that the existing community resources aren't great, but there's a certain lack of infrastructure that the rest of the state gets to support folks. For example, transportation is a huge need in this area. Even just getting between towns is so difficult. If you have a doctor who's a town over, you might not be able to go. If you are someone who is struggling with opioid use disorder and you're trying to get medication to be treated for that, you might have to go two towns over to Orange but can you actually physically get there if you don't have a car? There, there's an issue there. So how it's affected in Western Mass is all of these determinants like housing, having a safe place to use if you are using, being able to not use alone and be around people who, if you were to go into an overdose, that you had someone to call 911 or to administer an naloxone to reverse that overdose death is a huge issue because of the lack of infrastructure. And again, that is no commentary on the lovely people of these communities, but it's more so a comment on really the structural issues that exist within Western Massachusetts and how 
as Rachel's provided a great history of the opioid epidemic, how that's played out over the last hundred years to where we are today. And so I would say the huge need is really addressing these structural issues because part of HEAL, you know, the goal is to help end addiction long-term. Well, we're not going to end addiction long-term until we end houselessness, until we make sure that folks have food, <laughs> that they can afford to meet their health needs, that they have access to mental health services, that people can get to their doctor's appointment. I think we know in this region about 60% of residents are on mass health. Is mass health meeting folks' needs with what they're covering? No, I can't say for sure, but I think that we, what we're seeing and rates of houselessness and rates of folks who are struggling with opioid use disorder and who are unfortunately facing the consequences of overdoses, whether they're fatal or non-fatal, it's a commentary on the lack of resources that we're putting, that we're reinvesting into the community so to support people more holistically. We are here on Panorama talking with Tara Fisher from the Opioid Task Force and Rachel Katz from the Community Health Center of Franklin County, and we will be right back. All right, hello and welcome back to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Torres. We are speaking with Rachel Katz, the uh, Director of Addiction Services for the Community Health Center of Franklin County, and Tierra Fisher, a coordinator with the Opioid Task Force. And Tierra, the Opioid Task Force recently received a grant from the National Institutes of Health called the Healing Communities Study. It's part of the HEAL initiative. And HEAL, if I am correct, stands for Helping End Addiction Long-Term. Uh, do you want to tell us uh, about this study and what you guys hope to do with the grant? Yeah, so the Healing Communities Study is happening in four states, actually. So Kentucky, New York, and Ohio, and Massachusetts is one of them. Boston Medical Center is the um, PI, or rather lead investigator, that's facilitating the Massachusetts branch of the study. So they're working with community partners and helping managing and approving how the funds awarded in this grant will be used to make sure it's meeting the, the study's aims. So what is the study, right? So Healing Community Study has the goal to reduce overdose deaths by 40% um, within the communities that they're working with. And so right now in Massachusetts, there are 16 communities that have been selected Right now, we're representing Greenfield, Montague, Athol, and Orange as one cluster community. And we're part of what's wave two, which essentially means we're the second, we're part of the second group of communities that will be able to allocate th these funds. And so we're able to use these funds to put them into three bucket areas. So the first area is to increase education as well as distribution of naloxone, um, which naloxone can be administered to reverse an overdose. Additionally, um, the second bucket is to increase access to medication for opioid use disorder, or MOUD. And then the third bucket is to address safer prescribing of opioids at the prescriber level, as well as at the pharmacy level, the folks who are actually distributing these um, prescriptions. And so we launched on July 1st, and over the past, goodness, five months, we have worked with a team of community champions, community partners, as well as just community members who have been affected by this either directly or indirectly um, by their loved ones or family and working together to figure out what specifically Greenfield, Montague, 
apple and orange can do in those three bucket areas to really reach individuals with opioid use disorder and support them in whatever that looks like. And so we have about $500,000 to distribute and we'll, be we'll hopefully be implementing some of these projects um, as of January 1st, but in meeting with our uh, community members, we have been able to identify strategies in multiple sectors, such as transportation, working, hopefully, fingers crossed, to create addiction services at our local hospital, as well as increasing naloxone in the community. In addition to some of those strategies, Rachel and her role, which she can speak about a little bit more, she is playing a dual role as community faculty member, really being the lead educator on this project to help inform us with the most up-to-date information, as well as her role at the health center, because they are what's called the anchor agency on this project. And I'll, I'll go off so Rachel can speak a little bit more about that. So one of the really cool things about the Healing Community Study is that it's actually studying the level of community engagement. And so every decision that is made within the study is made by community coalitions. So when Tiara talked about bringing together partner organizations or community organizations, um, that's really what we're looking at is sort of how communities come together and, and make those decisions. Um, so as Tiara also said, my role is twofold. So as I was introduced, I'm the director of um, office-based addiction services at the community health center um, and so we are what tiara said is the anchor agency so we are the healthcare hub around which sort of everything else revolves and then i am also considered community faculty so um, boston medical center brought me on as an individual person who is a local expert and an addiction expert to bring you make sure that all of the interventions we have are based in data and that they're evidence-based that we're not just kind of pulling things out of thin air to see if they work and then also to act as training and technical assistance so for any intervention that does get stood up if people need more trainings more knowledge you know i'm basically on call 24 7 um and so that is that those are my two roles in the community so helping actually get more access to medication for opiate use disorder and then also acting as a local addiction expert for the rest of the community right and and just one, one last piece with healing community study we're really looking at tertiary prevention so what that means is we're really trying to reach people who um, are already currently using drugs, have already experienced an overdose and may be at risk for another one, or first-time users who would be at highest risk again for an overdose. Um, so that's not to say that there's not importance in primary prevention, but the purpose of this grant and this study is to support people currently uh, struggling with opioid use disorder as well. And, and that's a, mm -hmm. uh, a really important point right before we go to break. I want to get a better understanding uh, of this uh, initiative's uh, role directly in the community on a real micro level. Are you working directly with the individuals being in impacted uh, uh, with addiction, or are you sort of working with the organizations that would be working with these individuals? I'm, I'm just curious how the day-to-day -day would be if, if somebody is currently addicted living in Franklin County, in Greenfield. Do they reach out to you? Do you reach out to them? How would they get access to these resources? So I would say it's a mix of both. So as Rachel noted, what the study is, quote unquote, studying is how we're engaging with the community to make decisions about how this, these funds are spent. So it's important to name that there are some people who are very open about their recovery journey that have been a part of the decision-making process. There may be folks in the space who are using drugs and we just don't know. Um, 
But of course, part of our outreaching methods have been to connect with people who feel comfortable, who feel safe, um, being a part of the conversation and the decision-making process for this. Yeah, so I think, Tiara, that was a, a great sort of overview, and I agree. I think it's a little bit of both. So, you know, ultimately, the Healing Community Study is bringing lots of money to our region, which is great. And so that money is going both to community organizations, so folks like that, myself at the Health Center, Tapestry, the Recover Project, all of those really great community organizations. So they are getting money to stand up individual interventions. And then we are also, as part of our interventions, hopefully actually going to be able to stipend people who are using drugs to do their own outreach, to act as secondary exchanges for things like naloxone, to make sure that they are using with people, you know, and keeping them safe. And so it has been really important to us and something that we've brought into the conversation from the very beginning to have people who use drugs at the table. So within the harm reduction community and, and within sort of the communities of people who use drugs, there's a saying that says no change without us or no decision without us. And so I cannot sit here as someone who has incredible amounts of privilege as a white, well-educated woman with a prescription pad um, and make decisions for people who are unstably housed, who are using drugs chaotically, um, you know, who have maybe lost kids to the system. That's not, that's not my role. Um, and I would be overstepping so many bounds if I tried to take on that role. And so we have tried very, very hard from the beginning to make sure that we are reaching out either privately and anonymously or as Tiara said, in some of these more public settings where people feel safe, to make sure that people who use drugs are 100% at the table and are helping to guide those decisions. And that then we are using the money that HEAL is giving us to do interventions that will directly affect people who use drugs on a daily basis, as well as to pay people who use drugs to keep other people who use drugs safe, because that is also an incredible a service that that people are doing is, you know, we're, we're not going to act as gatekeepers. We're not going to ask people to volunteer their time. People deserve to be paid for work that they're doing. And we have the money that to pay them. Thank you for that, Rachel and Tiara. So we are talking about the healing community study or the heal initiative as part of the National Institutes of health grant that was given to the opioid task force. We are speaking with Tierra Fisher from the opioid task force and Rachel Katz from the community health center of Franklin County. Um, and an aspect of that grant is um, education. So I want to ask you guys, if someone is struggling with opioid use disorder, where can they find Narcan here in Western Massachusetts? Cause that's, that's a fundamental part of the work that you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And also just to name as well, when we talk about education within the context of the study, it's also for providers um, and folks who are actually prescribing opioids, who are doctors, who are treating people with opioid use disorder, um, but also as well as educating the public to try and normalize um, and reduce stigma against folks with opioid use disorder. But yes, where can folks get Narcan in the community if they would like some? Well, first off is, um, the state of Massachusetts has an open um, prescription, so to speak, so individuals can go to any pharmacy um, and you don't need a prescription to get Narcan. Um, if you are covered under MassHealth, MassHealth will cover the costs. Um, however, if you do have a private insurance, depending on what your plan is, um, you may have you may have to pay um, a fee for that or pay the full cost. Um, but individuals covered under MassHealth can go in without a prescription to get 
Narcan from there. Um, there's also Narcan within the community. So the OPA task force does provide Narcan to agencies. Um, if you are an agency, you can request it. For individuals, you can access Tapestry. Um, they also provide Narcan for folks. Um, there's also additional resources, um, the North Quabbin Community Coalition. If folks request Narcan, they can also make sure that you get some. Tiara, I think you covered it really well. So, you know, anyone, as Tiara said, anyone can go to any pharmacy and ask for naloxone or Narcan. Um, it, pharmacies will run it through your insurance. So that's what Tiara was referencing, that MassHealth will cover it at 100%. But if you have private insurance, then you may have to pay a copay. Tapestry is probably the best place to access Narcan. It is free for you. Um, you can go pick it up there and they can give you a bunch of it. You know, folks like police officers and ambulances, they obviously all carry Narcan with them. And the opioid task force actually instituted a really great thing called um, leave behind. And so if someone, if an emergency responder is responding to an overdose, then they have, they can leave behind extra doses of naloxone or Narcan. So in that way, they are also reaching some of our most vulnerable folks, people who haven't experienced an overdose already. But I think the biggest message to get across is that you can get Narcan at pharmacies and you do not need a prescription. And so for anyone who themselves is struggling with opiate use disorder or who has a friend or family member, um, I really encourage sort of everyone, quite honestly, to, to have Narcan with them. I have multiple things of Narcan in multiple different places. And, uh, you know, I certainly think for, for any loved ones that you know may be using illicit drugs or, or even have are prescribed opiates for pain, you know, accidental overdoses happen all the time. So anyone can go to any pharmacy. There's a standing order across the Commonwealth and, and can get Narcan. In addition to Narcan and, or rather naloxone should be viewed as first aid. If someone's having an allergic reaction going into anaphylactic shock, what do you do, right? You use the EpiPen, then you call 911. Same thing with naloxone or Narcan. You treat someone to get them breathing again, call 911 so they can get the help they need. Um, it really is a first aid tool and touching naloxone or administering it will not harm you. It will only help the individual that needs it. Also, another important point is that Narcan will not hurt you. So if you accidentally think that someone is having an overdose or, you know, if something else is happening and you give them Narcan, nothing is going to happen to them. It's not going to hurt them. Um, and there's also something called the Good Samaritan Law. So essentially, you cannot be prosecuted for administering Narcan to someone whom you think is having an overdose. And you can also not be prosecuted for possession of drugs. So if you are someone who is using drugs with other people and you administer Narcan and that emergency medical services or the police show up on the scene, you cannot be prosecuted for possession of drugs because you are also someone who saved someone with Narcan. I'd be interested to hear both of your responses in regard to harm reduction, given the fact that a few weeks ago, the city of New York, I believe the mayor announced that the city would uh, intervene to help people regardless if the individual uh, was willing to uh, accept uh, treatment? Yeah, so what the mayor of New York City announced is actually the antithesis of harm reduction. <laughs> um, so forcing people into treatment or forcing people sort of off the street is really not what harm reduction is about. Um, harm reduction is the idea that 
at its very core, people who use drugs are people and that they are autonomous to make decisions on their own. And harm reduction is the idea that we are going to treat people who use drugs as people and do everything in our power to keep them safe and alive. Um, and so New York City did something else really, really cool that is harm reduction, which is open the nation's very first supervised consumption site. Um, so a supervised consumption site is where someone can go and use their drugs with other people and with trained medical professionals, such that if they were to overdose, someone is there immediately to intervene. Supervised consumption sites also can help people find veins in order to inject their drugs. They can teach people how to smoke their drugs or sniff their drugs, um, which are safer routes of ingesting drugs. Um, and the reason that all of these things are important, often people sort of balk at the idea of like a nurse is going to help someone find a vein to inject heroin. Well, yes, because if you have proper injection technique and sterile injection technique and you know how to find a vein, then you are going to be safer using your drugs because you're not going to be causing skin or soft tissue infections, which then prevent abscesses, things like spinal infections, endocarditis, which is a heart infection. Um, you're not going to be missing your veins, which can cause swelling and again, infection in the skin. That is true harm reduction. You know, we also think so tapestry does syringe exchange, which is also harm reduction. So the idea of harm reduction and syringe exchange actually started again in New York City in the 1980s as activism around the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, people were sharing syringes or using syringes multiple times, which then was spreading the virus. Um, at one point, people who used drugs had a higher death rate from AIDS than gay men, and yet they got very, very little attention. Um, and it really was this dedicated group of drug user activists um, that stood on street corners in 1988 in New York City and got themselves thrown in jail um, to eventually make syringe exchange legal. And so Tapestry does that really valuable service of syringe exchange. They also provide things like Narcan, which is also harm reduction. Um, so essentially harm reduction is anything that can be done to keep someone who is using drugs as, as alive, but also as safe as possible. Yeah, I would, I would also add to that definition and, and it seems almost basic, right? Not to introduce any more harm as someone who's providing resources or services yep. as a healthcare provider. For example, um, the OVA task force just recently had their sober housing summit, and one of the panelists shared pretty openly about their experience as someone in recovery and how they would go to rehab treatment facilities, whatever, 90 days, six months, and then they would leave and have nowhere to live. And so that is not really supportive of them in their new experience in trying to be in recovery and, and be in a safe place. So when we're thinking about harm reduction, it's equipping not only individuals, but the people providing care, the people providing services with the skills and tool set to not set up folks for failure. We're making sure that everyone has everything they need. If they are still using, have what you need to do so safely. If you want to go on the journey and not use anymore, whether that means abstinence or whether that means receiving uh, medication for opioid use disorder, that you're set up to succeed in whatever path you choose with that. Thank you for that, Tiara. We have been speaking with Tiara Fisher from the Opioid Task Force and Rachel Katz from the Community Health Center of Franklin County about opioid use disorder and the HEAL initiative from the National Institutes of Health and um, what harm reduction means and how we've come a long way when it comes to treating drug addiction, but we still have a ways to go. Thank you guys. <laughs>